0: This car kind of comes swerving, careening down the road. Pulls in. And Erica, like, stumbles out of the car, like, red-faced drunk. With safety pins all over her face. Like, pushed through her eyebrow and her lip and her ears. I was like, what? (laughs) What is this? It was St. Patrick's Day weekend. And she'd been out with some friends downtown and had gotten drunk that night. And stuck a bunch of safety pins to her face. So... So I was like, all right, well that's interesting. Let's go to breakfast. I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm going to sit. And it's not because I'm envious of the cool mega church preachers. I uh I do want to be a little more relaxed. I I'm going to lean into my grandfather role a little bit today and tell stories. All right. Let's see if we can do this. There we go. I um, let's. I, I do want to start with a scripture reading. I spend a lot of my time anymore these days talking about teachings and doctrines, and I get involved in a lot of institutional dynamics and church planting and that kind of stuff. And sometimes I feel a little, like, disconnected from the human side of our Christianity. Like, I spend a lot of time in the doctrinal, intellectual side of Christianity. And it's good to remember our identity and who we are as people, um, very few of you know me You know Christian Matthew, but you don't know Matthew And so I want to tell some stories about where I come from I want to, I want to give my testimony in kind of a longer form That I don't have a lot of opportunity to do and, and it seemed good to me this this week to do that But before I do, I want to read Romans chapter 6 <clears throat> I think I'll just read the end I really love this chapter. It's a good one to memorize if you're ever looking for something to memorize. Uh, it, it it talks a lot about, like, there's obvious connections to baptism in Romans 6 because baptism is a process that's being described from a doctrinal perspective of what it does to us and how we identify with Christ's death and enter into new new life and resurrection power. But the way that he describes that is... is um, He's com- comparing and contrasting where we come from and where we are in Christ. And he says some really beautiful things in here, especially at the end. He's, he says, starting like at verse 12, let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body that you should. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members, your parts of your body as instruments of righteousness unto God. God wants to play us like a piano for righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid! Know you not that whom to whom you yield your members yourselves servants to obey, excuse me, <clears throat> you yield yourselves servants to obey? His servant you are to whom you obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness, unto iniquity, unto iniquity, even so, now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I um, <clears throat> I have a thing that I say in my family all the time. Uh, I say it openly to my brothers, especially that I'm my mother's good son, and she usually corroborates that. I was very, I was very. Uh, <clears throat> I was a very conscientious child growing up. I was interested in the Bible. I was interested in religious literature. I was good at memorizing the scriptures. I was—I took more than an average interest in in church things. I was my my grandfather was a preacher. Uh, my grandfather was an Italian immigrant, and he he immigrated with his family into Detroit and. <clears throat> All of my Italian family um, became Baptists because of uh, they they had their father had been raised Catholic in Italy and and was converted and was and, and all my my grandfather my great aunts and uncles all grew up in Italian speaking Pentecostal churches in the Detroit area. And all, all my my grandfather, and my great uncles went off to the Second War. <clears throat> they were naturalized in order to join the war. And um, when they came back, they they were ir- irreligious. They they didn't they didn't do anything with themselves. But their sisters had started going to a kind of a famous Baptist church called Detroit Baptist Tabernacle. And my grandfather was converted there, and and his siblings were as well and they were serious my uh uh my great aunts and uncles many of them went into the ministry my grandfather was one of those men and he he went to seminary school in in Texas and met my my grandmother who was very not italian and um dorothy she was a texas girl and they only ever had one son my father my grandfather started a church in ohio in finley ohio and he preached there for 56 years before he retired and um, I grew up moving around a lot. My father was in uh, manufacturing when, when I was young, when I was a baby. And we moved around a lot. We, we left Ohio when I was a baby and moved to, to two different places in Texas where my father worked. And then we moved. Those places went, went out of business, and my father lost his job. And we moved to Southern California. And so I grew up in Ventura, California, mostly. It's a really cool little beach town in Southern California. And we went to a Baptist church, which for Southern California was rather conservative, but within the sphere of fundamental independent Baptists was not very conservative. But we were serious. I went to I, my first few grades of school were at the Baptist School private school, and my father was a trustee and a deacon and on the school board and we were in church three times a week and we never missed an event and we were We were there twice on Sunday and every wednesday and we were we were faithful people i I as a child was not um i I was a little bit different than my peers. I, I didn't particularly like children. Uh, like I remember going to Sunday school and they would, you know, in Sunday schools in the evangelical church, you've, you know, you've seen the songs and you clap your hands, you turn around. I, I didn't want nothing to do with that. I thought it was the stupidest thing from the time I was his age, smaller. I just, I was too, I was too, I don't know, proud or what. I just thought that was foolishness. I didn't want anything to do with it. I was kind of a serious young child. Um, we were politically motivated as a family. I mean, my dad wasn't running for offices or anything, but we were very Republican. Uh, talk radio, always voted. We knew who we were, and that, that fit very well within our church identity. And they were mixed together. Church and, and politics were, were together, very much so. So, so I grew up in kind of a, a pretty moral for Southern California, um, conservative for evangelical Baptist home. I I remember, you know, we 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 used to go to Iwanas when I was a kid, and that was like Boy Scouts for church people, kind of. Memorize scriptures and then play games. And I would memorize scriptures, but I didn't want to play the games. I would go sit in the office with the old lady and file papers because I like adults more than children generally. And I, so I, so that's kind of where I come from. I was, I was growing up as kind of a serious young man. By the time I, I was a young teenager, we were just starting to get in trouble. I was about 14, 15 years old, and my buddies started drinking. Some of them started driving, and then we could go to parties and stuff. And um, I was just with my parents. My brother was ordained a couple of weeks ago, and I went out to his ordination. And uh, my parents were there, and we did some talking about, about the past. And my parents feel guilty. When I was 15, my dad took a position um, that, that led us out of Southern California and into Central Oregon and it was a very traumatic move for me i had my whole childhood and growing up was in southern california and all my buddies were there and we were just gonna we were just starting to drive and we were just starting to have fun and and i i remember the evening my parents sat the whole family down and said we're gonna we're, we're moving to oregon i was like oregon i don't i barely even know that's a state like where is oregon and i remember um this is this is pre-internet days. I had encyclopedias in my room, and I went and pulled the encyclopedia out of my set for Oregon. And the first thing I saw was, was the Beaver State. And I was like, the Beaver State? What in the world? What kind of hillbilly backwater are my parents moved me into from Cal- Southern California? So, uh, needless to say, I wasn't very excited about moving. And when I got there, I was a real... It was very hard for me to make friends um, I don't I don't know all why that is. It's just that age and high school and it's hard and new place and everything else. When I look back at my years at that time, I mean, middle school was atrocious. I hated middle school. I hated being in school. I, I didn't mind the education stuff. I just hated the social environment. And high school was just as bad, if not, well, it wasn't quite as bad. I had some friends by then. But I... <clears throat> I, I never really felt like I fit in anywhere. Um, I was a smart kid, but i didn 't get along with like the nerdy people and I was into sports and I wrestled but i didn 't really i didn 't really fit in with the jocks and like I just didn 't have anywhere that I fit like I was just kind of an oddball in any group where I was. I could kind of move anywhere between here and there, but i I never really had people that were close at that point in my life and the easiest people to make friends with were the people that you probably shouldn't make friends with the party kids and so not long after i moved into oregon i i i i sort of fallen in 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 oregon's the stoners so I started smoking dope and hanging out at parties and i, I um, my senior year of high school then was I was ahead of credit, so it was very easy for me to get through school. And and to be quite honest, public school is a racket. Like, if you learn how to play the game, it's not even hard. You don't have to try. Like, I, I, I would never show up to class. I would just show up on the days when there was a test and read the bold sentences in the chapter that week and ace it every time and go on with my happy life. And so I spent my entire senior year stoned out of my head and graduated with a th- three and a half average GPA. Um, I, during that time, um, I think I was just looking for acceptance, looking for people to belong to and, and a good time. Like I was, I just was like a good American kid. um, One of the biggest scams I pulled in high school, um, aside from stealing an office out of my principal's, a chair out of my principal's office, was that I talked them into letting me start a class. I, um, I, I, I convinced the school to let me start a philosophy class for seniors, which was really just me and my buddies smoking weed and hanging out and talking like stoners. I don't know why they went for it. I, I have no idea to this day, but it, it passed. He was like, okay, sure, try it. So I I had a class with all my buddies, and that's exactly what we would do. And we'd go sit out in the tennis courts. We'd hang out together. And um, the principal would come in every week or so and say, hey, what's going on in here? And we'd say something that sounded smart, and then he would leave, and we'd go on with our our, our whatever we were doing and <clears throat> that group of friends um, one day we were in the out in the tennis courts and my friends brought a girl along um, a girl I'd never met before she wasn't at my school uh, and a girl like I'd never seen before she was very different than anybody I'd known before she was almost bald uh, very small and and looked tough as nails And I was intrigued by her. I thought she was uh, like, who's this? What's this? What's going on here? Erica had been living on the streets already for, oh, probably a year at that time. And I'm not going to tell all her story. That's for another time. But she had run away for good at the time she was 15. And... And when she ran away, she the first group of people that she linked up with were White Power Skinheads in Salem, which is an hour north of where I lived. And um, she was different, and she was tough as nails. And um, some situations happened where she ended up on her own. And um, I'll, I'll tell you one story just to set the context for who Erica was when I met her. Uh, she got dropped off. Things went crazy up in Salem with the gang that she was running with. Uh, she was 15. Last school was in seventh grade, beginning of seventh grade, and um, so there she was on the streets. She'd run away with a friend. She'd been in this gang. A bunch of crazy stuff happened. Everybody got split up and busted up, and cops took some people away. And she was on her own. And she got dropped off at a at a uh, a concert in 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 Eugene. Um, concerts are like church for skinheads. It's where all the social events happen. It's where you communicate information. It's where you make plans. It's it's the closest thing that group has to like a central meeting. And they're very, very, very territorial. Um, and they're kind of the city that, that that a concert is in kind of runs the domain of that place. Like you don't show up unless you're invited, unless you're from that town and you're from those gangs. So she didn't know what the scene was. She thought there was some white power people in Eugene, but this show was very much not. It was the opposite crowd. And it was, this is a very, very dangerous scenario. Like people get maimed and killed in this environment. So there are other things like, um, I was always fascinated in Lancaster County how gang-like Lancaster County is. You can tell who, what gang somebody's from in Lancaster County by the size of covering they wear or the cut of dress they wear, and it's very much that way with the skinheads. Like, you can tell by how people dress. It's very subtle, but if you're in that culture, it's as clear as a neon sign. You know exactly who people are and where they're coming from by the way they look. and. And again, if you're from that culture, you know, it like you can walk around in Walmart and Ephrata and say and pick out which church people go to based on how they look. And it's the same kind of thing there. So she walks into a a show at at Iggy's Tea House and um, and immediately everybody knows she doesn't belong and immediately everybody knows she's all alone. And so a crowd gathers around her, and it's kind, it's a it's a very intimidating scenario. And they the the message is, this is your last chance. Get out. She had one friend there, one person that she knew, and she went up to him as this crowd was assembling, and asked if he had any weapons. And he didn't. He didn't have anything to help her. And so she stood there as this crowd gathers around her. A 15-year-old, probably 85 pounds soaking wet, as a crowd of skinhead gathers around her, and they say, you need to leave. And she says, no, I paid my money to get in here. I'm not going anywhere. And this is how these people act. Uh, That's almost expected behavior, but it's also also expected that somebody's going to get hurt. And so somebody there has the presence of mind to say, hold on a second, guys. This is a very young girl. She probably has no idea what's going on. And so they stop for long enough to start talking to her and say, well, who are you? And why are you here? And what's your story? And where are you coming from? And who do you know? And they start asking all these questions. And they decide at that point that she's not the threat that she appears to be, that she's just a misguided young girl. They take her in, and they take her up to Portland. Now, this is a rival gang. There's a lot of dangerous stuff happening in these crossing of paths. Erica's family doesn't know where she's at for these years, this year. We're about a year at this point. And so they they wonder, um, but they, don't, they know that she's with a bad crowd, so nobody pursues too far. She ends up in Portland, and um, this this gang has some connections to people in Eugene that happen to be coincidental friends of mine so it's like friends of friends of friends situations and that's what brings her to my school this day friends of friends there's another situation that happens in Portland she gets arrested she goes home and her she tells her mom I'm not staying here there's that's the one night she was she was home after she was 15 she tells her mom I'm not I'm not staying here and her mom says okay you just come home for the night and I'll take you wherever you want to go tomorrow, but I'm, I'm not going to take you back to those people. And she says, okay, I know some people in Eugene that I can stay with. And so these people that she knew of in Eugene, that's the network of friends that I'm familiar with. And so they bring her to my school and everybody introduces her and she's going to have a welcome to Eugene party with some people that I know. And so I show up at this party and, And it's a lot of fun, and we're all hanging out and drinking. And Eric and I kind of connect that night. And I tell her, hey, can I take you out sometime? And so she's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so at this point, um, (laughs) she's hard to get. At this point, I, uh, I, I had... I was, my parents went to a very big church in in downtown Eugene, but my wrestling coach went to a little country church, and so I had talked my parents into letting me go to a different church than they did, because it was my wrestling coach that was the youth pastor there, and they allowed, things were already rocky with me, and so I think they were just glad that I wanted to go somewhere, so they let me go, but usually what I did is I would just put on a suit Sunday morning and take my dad's car and um, go have coffee. And so this Sunday, I told Erica that at that party, I said, "Hey, I'll pick you up Sunday morning. We'll go have breakfast." And she's like, "Okay, great." So I, I I drove out from my parents' place. I'm in my suit. I'm in my dad's Explorer. He's got a car phone. It's super swank. This is like top of the line stuff. I'm looking good. This is gonna be uh, this is gonna be all right. So I drive in to her to the house where she's staying, and I go up and I knock on the door. And I said, uh, hey, is is Erica here? And she could tell that I was all dressed up. And it was the lady that Erica was living with. And, and she said, oh, honey, I'm sorry. She's not home. She hasn't been here for two nights. And I was like, oh, really? And I was kind of bummed. And I was like, OK, well, tell her I stopped by. And I turn around to leave. And this car kind of comes swerving, careening down the road. Pulls in. And Erica like stumbles out of the car, like red face drunk with safety pins all over her face, like pushed through her eyebrow and her lip and her ears. I was like, what, (laughs) what is this? It was St. Patrick's Day weekend and she'd been out with some friends downtown and had gotten drunk that night and stuck a bunch of safety pins to her face. So, so I was like, all right, well, that's interesting. Let's go to breakfast. So I took her to uh, the old pancake house on Eleventh Street, and and um, I was super nervous, and I was super awkward, especially around girls. And uh, I didn't I didn't know what to even say to this girl. Here's something interesting, though. I, I was I was not a ladies' man, not by any stretch. Um, I had never had I'd never really had a girlfriend. Um, I was just. An odd duck. And um, I remember thinking when I was driving from my parents' house out to where Erica was staying, I remember having this weird thought in my head. I thought, wouldn't that be crazy? Wouldn't that be wild? if, If this girl ended up, like, if I ended up marrying her. That would be wild. Like, how weird would that be if this was, like, the first girl I meet is somebody I ended up marrying. I don't know where that came from. I don't know why I was thinking that way. Like, I just met her the one time. I wasn't prone to that kind of fanciful. It's not like I'd had those thoughts about anybody before. It was just something that struck me as I was driving up there. And then, and then, I, know what, then I just forgot about it. Well, I didn't forget about it. It stuck in the back of my head for a long time. So now we're at the pancake house, and my sister had uh, uh, her roommate happened to walk into this pancake house, and so I sat and talked to Kathy the whole time I was on a date with Erica, because I knew how to talk to Kathy, and I didn't know how to talk to Erica, and um, she must have thought, I don't who knows what, who is this, who is this guy? Take me on a date and hang out with some other woman. So I took her home, and um, we started hanging out then together more and more it was my senior year and I started spending more time with her friends than with my friends, um, her inner circle, than my inner circle. And, um, it wasn't long until, until I, I, I became more and more interested in, in her circles than mine. And I wanted to be a part. I had never been, obviously never been around gang culture before, and I was fascinated by a lot of things. Um, I was not a violent person. So I wrestled in high school. I was a wrestler, but I wasn't particularly good at it. Uh, I'm not really built like a wrestler. I never was. It was too long and lanky. And 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 one thing my my coaches always told me when I was in, in high school wrestling is that, you just don't have that killer instinct. You don't have the the that thing that makes you want to win. Like, you give up too easy. And um, it made me not a good wrestler. So I wasn't a violent person. I wasn't aggressive at all. But I started hanging out with these friends, and they were tough, and they were cool, and they were whatever. But more than that, I felt I could tell that they really they were really connected. They really like, um, they were community is what it came down to. Like you can, that's one way to say it. And I was fascinated by that. And I felt like I, I fit in when, so I tried really hard to be like them to, to fit in in that circle. And it's not, there's a lot of barriers to entry. And I think that was probably made it more interesting, not less. Um, Erica asked me one time... I started dressing more like them. And I remember showing up one time at a place where everybody was at. And Erica's like, why are you dressed like that? I was like, dressed like what? And she said, why are you dressing like a skinhead? First of all, you don't just do that. Like, you don't just start dressing like a gang. Like, you have you have to come in through the door. Um, you, you have to earn your way in. So it was dangerous. but But more... I think I think the reason she liked me is because I was different than that initially. And she had enough tough guys around, and she liked somebody who was a little nicer and a little less broken. But I eventually made my way into that scene, and Eric and I spent... Um, this would have been 1996 i graduated finally that year but before i before i graduated i was spending most of my most most of the time i would i would either stay with erica at her house or i would i would leave my house at 1 in the morning and not come back and I was in and out of my own house. I I remember going back home from my graduation party and I I took a bunch of skinheads to my parents' house and my parent oh my poor parents, they they just didn't have any idea what to do with me. I remember talking to him once and my dad said, What are you doing? Like, what is this? And I was like, No, dad, you don't understand. They're good people and they're all tight and it's it's all right and he's like, No, it's not all right. My dad kind of just shut me out then And I think they both kind of did They didn't know what to make of what I was doing And I was 18 And you know how it is Like when you're 18 you're just supposed to go do your own thing And that's kind of where they were at So I moved out And I, I moved in with Erica But shortly after that We left We left that place and were homeless And we would just go from party to party And place to place And hanging on the streets or walk for miles to somewhere where we could crash on a couch or stay with friends it's a lot of fighting a lot of drinking a lot of foolishness but Eric and i were unique in some ways two ways in particular i i didn't know i didn't know how old she was for one for a long time i remember one night we were all drinking in a park at one o'clock in the morning, and the cops pulled into the park and they lined everybody up and they took everybody's information and they were they were having everybody read off their date of birth down the line and it's like Eric and I were at the end and um, it's like their birth dates were like seventy two, seventy six, seventy four and it got to me and I said my birthday is one twenty seventy eight and everybody looked down the line seventy eight you're that young. And then Erica said, 12, 10, 80. And everybody's like, 80? You were born in 1980? I had no idea you were that young. I didn't know how young she was. Because when I met her, she was a street kid. She'd already been on the streets for a year. And so I, I didn't, it's not like a, hi, how are you? How old are you? When's your birthday? So um, so we were unique in that we were in a, in a much older gang. Can you tighten that up? I'm just gonna i just going to tip. have my phone. Okay. We were in an. Well, we can put it, rest it right there. That'll work. We were in an older gang with older people, as you can tell from that story, and but we, um, but we were younger, right? So we were the youngest in an old gang, and 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 these gangs, they're they have a very short generation. Like, you hang out in these spaces for a few years, and then you either go to jail or you grow up and quit being stupid enough to get in fights all the time, and you go on with your life. So. You know, four years is a long, a long career as a skinhead. Um, And that's what happened in our gang is that people generally kind of like moved on with their life or went to jail or or just disappeared. And 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 as a new crowd came into our gang. Eric and I were as old as the people that were there, but we were part of the old crew, and so we had, like, a lot of clout. Like, we were part of the old crew, and they were the new crew, even they were all the same age. And there weren't... That that gang wasn't involved in criminal enterprise or anything. We were just... It was kind of like a... A white trash version of West Side story, like we it was just a neighborhood gang, like we would go to parties and we would fight and we would whatever, but it wasn't we were just buddies that all hung out together and took care of each other and um time went on. I finally proposed to Erica in i think the beginning of ninety eight I asked her to marry me. When we were first dating, I told her I never want to get married and never want to have kids. So much for that. Uh, I think I was just trying to be edgy. But I I, um, I proposed to her in the beginning of 1998, and uh, we had been together for a couple years then. And that's the other thing, is that long-term couples aren't really a thing. Everybody kind of, like, trades boyfriends and girlfriends in that scene. Another thing about that scene was that there um, weren't—women weren't really considered generally a part of the gang. Women are kind of like—they're girlfriends, they're connected, but they're not usually skinheads. And if they are, they're not really accepted as a part of the gang, except for two girls in our crew. One was Erica, and another was an older girl. And um, no, if you, if you were to ask on the streets who, where's Matt, everybody would be like, I don't know, what are you talking about? If you would ask where's Erica, but if you said where's Matt and Erica, everybody knew exactly who you were talking about. We were always together. And um, so I proposed in 1998. I should tell you how Shane and Mary fit in this story. I, I'm, we met them back then. They, were, they had some mutual friends, and we got in a fight at a punk rock house with a bunch of punkers that night. And Shane had been there that evening. I won't tell all the details of that story, but we had crossed paths. Like we had beat up some of his friends. That's where we first connected with them. And then, and then Mary, see, we were homeless. And so we would always sit at IHOP because at IHOP, you could buy a cup of coffee for a dollar and sit there all day. It's a bottomless cup of coffee. So if it was raining or grows outside or late or early or cold or whatever, you could, you could scrounge up a buck and go sit at IHOP for, three, four, five hours if you wanted to till they ran you off or whatever. And so we would always hang out at IHOP and Mary happened to be a hostess at IHOP. And so, um, so Mary came in one time, she was always nice to us, but, but she was just like, just somebody like we were, she wasn't anybody to us. It was just the lady that worked at IHOP and, and she came in one time and she had some she had a really nice pair of boots on and and Erica's like, "Did you see those boots?" I was like, "Yeah." She's like, "You think they would fit me?" I was like, "I think so." She's like, "I'm I'm going to take them." I was like, "All right. We'll hit her up outside when she leaves work. You can tax her boots." And um we were going to do that. And that night, my car broke down and I couldn't get to work. And I was sitting at IHOP I was trying to, Eric and I worked opposite shifts. We had, we had an apartment by this time. It was close to the IHOP and we worked opposite shifts. She would ride her bike. She was working as a CNA at an old folks home. And I was working at a steel mill and I, um, I, I did, my car was broken, and I couldn't get to work. And so I was at IHOP trying to figure out what to do. And, and, sh, and Mary's boyfriend, Shane, who had a big, long ponytail, a big, greasy ponytail, uh, not the kind of people I would typically hang out with back then. He, he was there, he was the only one there and I was I was telling him, I don't know what I'm to do I've got to get to work and he's like, well I can give you a ride I was like, really? You give me a ride? He's like, yeah sure, I'll give you a ride so then he went and told Mary who was working, because he would hang out there while she was working, he went and told Mary, hey I'm going to give that guy a ride, she's like, who? he's like, that guy and she's like, he's going to kill you and he's like, nah, it will be alright and then he came back and he was like, oh no I think this guy's going to kill me I, so I hung out together. He gave me a ride to work. And then the next night, Eric and I were together there. And, and we were talking about taxing her boots. And I was like, no, no, don't do that. The, the, her boyfriend's cool. He gave me a ride to work. She's like, He what? Yeah, he, he's really funny. He gave me a ride to work. And he made me laugh the whole time. And um, she's like, all right, you weirdo. So, so we didn't tax Mary's boots. And we started hanging out with them. They ended up moving in with us. At, at our apartment And then um, I should tell A couple other things About that time Air, It happened to be That a lot of the people That we hung out with Especially the girls At that point Were into witchcraft And um, That's The I don't know sometimes I think people think that sounds crazy like are people really into witchcraft in Oregon they are o- Oregon's a place with a lot of witchcraft uh, people are really like neo-pagan Wiccan Satanist like there's a lot of a lot of occult in Oregon and and so it wasn't that surprising like it, especially in subcultures everybody's into something occultic um, and so a lot of the girls were into witchcraft and so when we would have a party all the girls would go in the back and mess around with Ouija boards and and do weird occult stuff and all of us would sit in the front of the room and drink beer play video games or something stupid and um, I I at that point in my life I would have told you that I was a Christian and that seems insane to me now but I was very sincere about it. What I meant by that was that from, from growing up, I never, I never had a moment. I don't know if I've ever had a moment of doubt in my life that Jesus Christ was, was God in the flesh incarnate, that he lived a perfect life, that he did miracles, that he died on the cross for my sins and rose again on the third day. As long as I've ever known that story, I have believed it to be true. I never really had a phase of my life where I went through like doubt about those facts of the gospel. They just were self-evident to me because I learned them growing up. And so I I felt like from 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 the poor doctrine that I was taught, like the sinner's prayer, eternal security, ask Jesus into your heart. That form of Christian conversion I had done at five years old And I had gone through those steps And I believed that Jesus Was the son of God, that he lived a perfect life He died on the cross for my sins and rose again on the third day And that's what makes you a Christian So the differentiation between a Christian And a heathen is someone who believes Those things are true is a Christian And someone who doesn't believe those things are true Is a heathen So that's the only distinction there was to be made And since I believed those things were true The rest of my life was immaterial. The fact that I was a a drunken, carousing, brutalizing, fist-fighting skinhead didn't affect my Christianity because I still believed that premise was true. I think that there's a lot of people in that category. I think a lot of people in the evangelical world live in that space. I don't think a lot of people are as, as brutal and horrible as I was. Some are. But a, a lot of people think that their life is disconnected from their faith. And that's that's a heritage of the Reformation. So so when all the girls were into all this occult stuff, I was like, I would tell Erica, y'all are crazy. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't mess with that stuff. It's not right. Um, I think for her. Uh, uh, this, is, this is my assumption She's never told me this But uh, um, I think that the, the pursuit of the occult Was a spiritual version Of the pursuit of power That we like When, when Erica was young She was hurt And she left home saying I'm not going to let anybody hurt me again And that's how she ended up in street gangs And she ran with very very strong Very dangerous Very violent people but nobody was going to hurt her again. At least if they were, it was going to be on her terms. And I think that the pursuit of the occult was similar. It was something about power. It was something about not feeling vulnerable or weak and a way to manipulate supernatural things the way that she manipulated physical power. I think that's probably what calls a lot of people to the occult feelings of powerlessness is it's a way of manifesting something in your life. That's more than you without The moralism and and discipline that's required through religion and so things started to get weird really weird Um, things are moving around the house and sounds and things and as that stuff would happen I'd be like hey that's her deal not mine it don't got nothing to do with me I'm a Christian if you want to play with that stuff that's on you it's bad juju don't do it but it's, that's on you man but then I was home alone one night and I was sitting on my couch and it, it was like like I was sitting on my couch and, and the, the living room was where you entered the house and there was a long hallway and I was sitting on my couch and it was like somebody took my Zippo lighter and was standing in the middle of the hallway and threw it in the middle of the room I was just sitting on my couch and my lighter comes flying in the room so I jump up and run into the hallway, try to figure out what's going on. Nobody, nowhere, nothing. And I'm like, "What is this about?" And I met, I remember I spent like 15 minutes, like setting my Zippo up on the edge of the the entertainment center and seeing if I could get it to fall into the middle of the room. Like, how did this happen? I didn't. I, I can't believe this happened. I don't know if I told Eric about that back then It freaked me out though Because nobody was there And this stuff isn't I'm a Christian This stuff isn't supposed to have nothing to do with me And then The next event that happened Was I was at IHOP With with a friend of mine Who was living with us And uh he, we were talking about these crazy girls messing around with all this occult and witchcraft and stuff and he mentioned the name of one of the familiar spirits that they had been talking to and the salt shaker slid across the table and fell off the table in a crowded IHOP restaurant and and that really freaked me out like because it wasn't at home nobody was there but me and Robert and this stuff's happening in public. Like, that's a whole different step. I remember we we, we used to sit and drink. It's the middle of summer. We'd have the door and all the windows open. And all of a sudden, the whole room would just go cold. Like, you could see your breath cold. Our atheist friends got to the place. They're like, I'm not coming to your house anymore. It's too weird. And, um... I didn't know what to make of all that. I just knew it freaked me out. And... And um, At at this point Soon after this point Erica and I uh, We asked Shane and Mary to move out Because we were going to get married And um, We finally married In August of Of 98 And Our wedding was a trip Had a giant Irish dude show up in a kilt And leather gauntlets And My dad flew in and it was like the mafia was walking in one door and the Irish kilt guy was walking in the other door. And like every kind of riffraff you can imagine at my wedding, it was in Erica's grandmother's backyard. And uh, we 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 were gonna my car. I had this little BMW, and I was always working on it. It was a 76 BMW 2002. I was always working on that thing, and I couldn't ever get it run. And Shane and I had just replaced the clutch that week in that car, and I needed to get it working because we were going to take it for my honeymoon at our wedding. And we were working on that thing till 1 o'clock in the morning, the night before I got married, and finally gave up and just took Shane's car up to, up, up to the wedding. Erica was worried I wasn't going to show up. I was late to my own wedding. And, um, so we didn't have anything to do. I had a buddy that had flown in from California that was in my wedding party. And, and after the wedding was over, um, I, I, I didn't know what to do I didn't have a car So I told Shane Well you're gonna take Shion up to Portland For the to, to to leave in the morning At the airport So just We'll go out by the coast And you can drop me And Erica off At a At a at a hotel Somewhere on the coast And we'll stay a couple nights And you can come pick us up We'll just hang out on the beach And So we drove Over to the coast And drove all the way up To the Washington border There wasn't a single vacancy In all the hotels All the way up the coast The 101 and um, so that didn't work. That's the kind of <laughs> forethought and planning I had in my life at that point. We were just kids. I was, She was 17 and I was 20. And um, after we were married, I remember shortly after we were married, uh, I remember having a conversation with Erica about whether or not what we were going to do about being skinheads like how long are we going to do this for because like it's not a you just get tired of it is what comes down to you get tired of always being on call like on call for violence on call waiting for somebody to call and say hey i'm down at a bar and i need to get in a fight with these guys show up here in 10 minutes or walking down the streets and somebody you ran into before n- n- jumping out of an alley or who knows what it's just always on edge always on edge and um and i i, I talk sometimes about cycles of of poverty and cycles of bad decisions uh, i feel i remember the, the example really sticks out on my mind. I, I was working at that steel mill, and my car, I, 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 had, I hadn't paid for, I don't know, my insurance or something. And so I got pulled over on my way to work. And I got a ticket for not having insurance. Well, I can't stop going to work just because I got a ticket for no insurance. So the next night, I'm driving to work again, and I get pulled over again. Did you get your insurance? Nope, I didn't get my insurance. Okay, well now you're suspended. Here's a ticket for not driving with insurance and driving while suspended. Well, I'm still not. I still got to go to work. So I take. Uh, there I am driving the next night. A week later, and pulled over again. And that sounds crazy, probably to all of you. But see, back then in my at that time in my life, I got pulled over every other day. Like the, it's a it's not that big of a town, Eugene. Like they knew who all of us were. And they knew the cars we drove, and they, they knew we were into trouble. And if it was Wednesday and I didn't get pulled over, I knew I was gonna on Thursday. It was almost an every other day occurrence. Like, I just, it was, a, it was cat and mouse. It was what we did. Like, they thought, if I pull you over enough, I'll catch you for something because I know you're doing stuff. And that's how I lived. So now I've got, I don't know, how many tickets for driving with no insurance and how many tickets for driving while suspended. And how many and now I'm getting tickets for driving without a license because I'm suspended. And I got $5,000 worth of fines, and I still got to get to work. What are you supposed to do? Like, I, what, what you're supposed to do is not... Make a mess of your life like that So you don't get into those situations But when you're in that situation It feels helpless It feels hopeless And you get so far down the rabbit hole That you just like I might as well keep going I'll, I'll, They'll give me tickets Until they throw me in jail And impound my car And I'll do 30 days And then I'll get out And it'll be done And I'll start over again That's what you think And hope that you don't get An assault charge on top of it While you're there and that desperation and hopelessness. There's something like that, in, that in, those, in those cultures where the meanest, most dangerous people you encounter in those subcultures are not the people that are the best trained fighters or the biggest or the lift the most weights. The most dangerous people in those, in those cultures are the people that just have nothing to lose. They just don't care. And it's why Erica could be 85 pounds and dangerous as any man that I ran with. Because when you have nothing to lose, when you have nothing to live for, you just don't care anymore, and you just go crazy. You just you just literally go wild. That's the place where we were at. And... Um, and so now we're married and we started talking what happened was a girl that was my buddy's girlfriend got pregnant and he split on her and i had some kind of code of honor that that made me feel a little responsible for her like i just i didn't feel responsible for her i just felt bad for her because he was my mate and he just he just did her dirty he just got her pregnant and split I was like that was a bum move to do so we gave her a place to stay at the end of her pregnancy and she had her baby because I had a room and I could do it and so we let her stay there and she had her baby and then she wanted to party like she hadn't drank for three months at the end of her pregnancy and she just wanted to go out and party she was just a kid and so she said hey will you watch the baby while I go out and we're like all right whatever so she would go out and then she'd ask the next week and then she'd go out and she would stay gone for a couple of days. And we'd be calling her and be like, where are you at? Are you, your baby's here at my house. And it just got more and more until she would be like, can I leave for a week? And we'd be like, I don't know. All right, I guess. And finally, we were like, why don't you just leave him with us and go do what you want to do? And she um, so we had this little baby staying with us. His name was Eric and i at the same time that we were keeping that baby there was a gang from california that came up some of the people in our gang had been from their gang and leaving a gang is like it puts you on an, it puts you on a bad list like you're not allowed to leave it depends on the gang depends on the situation but generally it's a bad thing your old crew is mad at you if you relocate or if you go somewhere without permission or without 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 working through the proper channel So some people left and we were a different gang than they were And so there was bad blood But these guys in California were a different deal And they were they were going into people's work And pulling people out and beating them on the streets Throwing bricks through windows and showing up with guns It's kind of a different deal So things were really tense And um, I, I always I always had a gun with me at that point We We Highly prized like Fighting. Like, we were fighters. We were not, we were not, we we took a lot of pride in our prowess as street fighters. Like, we want, if we were going to, if we had a problem with you, we were going to fight. We weren't going to shoot your house. We weren't going to, we had this kind of like code of honor that we were fist fighters. But we all had guns, but guns were for home protection. But now people are getting their homes threatened. So I always had a gun close at hand because I didn't know when they were coming by my place. And people had been driving by and there was suspicious stuff happening. And I remember coming home from work one night and Erica was with the baby was in a car seat in front of the hallway. And Erica was sitting on the couch and I was like, babe, you can't leave that baby there. If Somebody comes busting through this door. He's right there. And she's like, OK, well, where should we put him? So we moved the car seat and over here and we walk away and we're like, well, no, that don't work because if they throw a brick through that window, it's going to he's right there. And, well, we can't put him in that. Like, there was nowhere safe to put the baby. And it was like, well, what kind of life are we living that we can't even take care of a child? And we started talking very seriously to that point about leaving that culture. And there wasn't, I, I, it wasn't about, like, it wasn't any sense of, of shame or repentance or anything. It was just, I didn't want to be crazy anymore. I didn't want to live that kind of life. It's just exhausting. The problem for us in leaving our gang was that if we did, it wasn't so much that we had a problem with our gang. We had the clout where we could leave. The problem was if you leave your gang, you leave your support network. And we had a lot of enemies. We had a lot of people that didn't like us, and we were pretty well known. And and if you have a problem and you've left your gang, you have nobody to call, nobody to help you, nobody to back you up. But on the other hand, we were also dead tired of like these, you know, one night you're out risking your life for a guy and the next night they're all fighting with each other over some girl. And you're in the middle of some love triangle trying to figure out whose side you're on while they're about to kill each other over some girl that just blew through town that nobody even knows. And like it's such an unstable environment and and the stakes are so very high. And it all just finally starts to dawn on you. This is a stupid way to live. Like, how did I get here? I remember waking up hungover one morning. Beer cans all over my house. Stumbling through, looking for a half-burned cigarette. And sitting down on the couch and just hacking up a lung. And lighting a cigarette. And finally feeling some sense of relief. And having some tobacco with a hungover head. And just thinking, how on earth did I get here? Like, how? The memory of my life, like from being a kid, like this little good Baptist kid, to waking up in a trash heap with a bunch of drunks, scrounging through the floor for a half-burned-up cigarette so I can have some sense of relief with my head swollen. And just thinking, what? I couldn't even retrace the steps. I remember very distinctly, how did I get here? And I didn't know. It just was like... Almost like it happened to me. And so that's the phase of life we were in. And we were deciding about what to do. And, and back at that first time we had talked about when Eric and I first got married and I was like, we were talking about whether or not we should stay or go or grow our hair out or what. And I remember back then we were like, well, I, it was it was like we didn't know we didn't have any other identity then. I told Erica, well, if I was to grow my hair out, like, how would I wear my hair? Like, what kind of clothes would I wear if I didn't wear skinhead clothes? Like, what would we do? Who would we hang out with? Who would our friends be? Like, how, how do you make a life different than the life that you have? Like, where do you start that process? How do you make those decisions? And, we, and it just seemed kind of like paralyzing. So we just kind of forgot about it and kept going. Well, now the situation with the ha- baby happens, and and we're married now, and it's like, no, we got to figure this out. We got to, if we want our lives to be about anything else, like we're married now, if we have a future, it's going to have to be under a different premise. And so, we had been hearing all these stories about about this gang up in Portland, a very big gang, much bigger than ours, probably ten times bigger than ours. But there's two hours difference, so there wasn't a whole lot of back and forth. But it was people that had taken Erica in, so a lot of people we knew. But they, they had beef with us. I don't even know why, but every time we ran into somebody, they were like, oh, Rose City said they're going to kill you if they see you. It's like this on-site stuff, like, don't ever come to our town or we'll kill you. And half of that's bluster, and half of it's real threat. And you're never quite sure which is which. And Eric and I I decided, well, if we're going to get out, then we got to deal with this Rose City thing. Because what I don't want to happen is we leave. We're cool. Like we have we have a baby three years from now and run into a group of guys somewhere and they jump us in a parking lot with our baby. Like, I don't want that. So if we're going to have problems with them, we'll have problems now and get over with it. So there was a show, another show up in Portland. And and it's the kind of thing that you just don't go there without permission, and we certainly wouldn't have had permission. So we drove up there this night, and we came in late to the show, and it was a very big theater. Um, And we walked in, and I, I, it's like a, it's like a movie. I can see it in my head. We walked in, and we walked into the middle of the dance floor, and like it was like this red sea, like people just parted and got out of the way as we walked into the middle of this dance hall. And then they all just stood in a in a circle around us and everybody was whispering and like, I can't believe they're here and all this stuff and you can hear this chatter. And Eric and I just stood back to back and we expected to be jumped by a hundred people. Wasn't the first time we'd been in that situation, but these people knew how to fight and it was really dangerous. And a whole group of kind of like the leadership of that gang came up and I thought, well, here we go. And he said something kind of crass to me. And I said, look, we're going to grow our hair out. We're leaving the scene. And I heard you guys have a problem with us. So if we have problems, let's just deal with it now. Cause I'm When I leave here, I'm done. And he said, man, you got a lot of gumption coming in here. And he stood there and I was just waiting. Like it was one of those moments. It's just on the threshold of like blowing up. And just when I expected we were going to fight, he put out his hand as a gesture of reconciliation and shook my hand. And he said, you're all right. You're all right with us. See, in that culture, there's so much of a like bravery is the ultimate virtue. And to do something insanely brave, like gives you clout with people. And they just thought it was so wild that the two of us would go in there. It bought us enough credibility that they left us alone. And so that was done. So now we could leave. And so Erica and I, we, we did, we started changing and about this time, right, right, Not long after that episode, I was at work. I had changed work at this point. I was working at a group home and Erica called me one night. I worked night shift. So it was the middle of the night and she called me and she said, Matthew, something happened. I was like, what happened? She said, God spoke to me. I said, well, yeah, what did he say? She said, he said he loves me. I was like, what? She told me this whole story of what had happened. It was a very intense environment. She had been involved in this occult stuff. Crazy stuff was happening. And she was... She got to a moment through all this stuff that happened in this evening just crippled and paralyzed by fear and afraid that everything was crashing in spiritually around her. And at that moment, everything cleared away and she heard what she understood to be God saying, I love you. There's a lot more to that story, but for the purposes of tonight... I didn't know what to make of that. So I'm on the phone at work. God loves me. And I was like, okay. I mean, I've told you that before. And she's like, no, you don't understand what I mean. I mean, God loves me. And I know that. And I was like, Erica, I don't know what you're trying to tell me. What do you want? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? And she's like, I don't know. You're the Christian. What are we supposed to do with this stuff? (laughs) And I said, well, I don't, I don't... Do you still have that Bible Grandpa gave you? She said, yeah, I think so, somewhere. I said, well, why don't you start reading it? I was like, do you want to go to church? She's like, I don't know. I was like, well, find that Bible and start reading it, and we'll go to church. She's like, okay. So I went home. She starts reading the Bible. My car's broke again, of course. And so we walked to the closest church. The first night, Eric and I went to a church service. It was a Wednesday night, and uh, (laughs) it was like five or six 70-year-olds in the sanctuary. And they started praying in tongues and hooting and hollering. And the place was empty, and I was like, we are out of here. This is not my cup of tea. So we we bugged out of there. And I was like, we're going to have to find a Baptist church. Those people I know. It's just a little bit further to walk up to the Baptist church. So we started going to the Baptist church. The first time... The Baptist preacher came to my house. I was in a tank top with a shoulder holster and my nine millimeter, and I answered the door. He had his little daughter. His name was Pastor Kaminsky of Westside Baptist Church in Eugene. And Pastor Kaminsky had his little daughter as I answered the door with a gun. And he said, hi, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, you're the preacher from that church. And he said, yeah, we were glad to have you last Sunday. I just wanted to stop by and say hello and get to know you, would you mind if I come in? And he came into my house with his daughter, with me wearing a gun, and uh, smoking a cigarette. He sat at my table and I stood by the the vent hood, because I'm respectable, you know, and blew my smoke up the vent hood while we talked. And he took a real interest in me, he was a sweet man, he was a good man. We started going to that Baptist church, and Erica started changing. She um, she did start growing her hair out. I did, too. We started trying to wear normal clothes, and, and she started listening to Christian radio, and she heard about this, uh, this uh, summer camp for foster children that, wa- that a church was, was putting on. And so she responded to that and went to this church to talk to these people about being a counselor at this camp Christian summer camp for foster children. This was not the kind of thing that we normally did. Um, and And she was really like she was becoming a soft person. She'd be, she was developing a soft heart. She's starting to care about people. She's starting to be kind and um, and wise, actually. I and she started reading the Bible a lot, a lot. We uh, when when I when we got married, she was working at a group home, and I was I was I. And she called me just after she went back to work after after our honeymoon. What honeymoon of it there was. And she, she'd been hit by an old man and she was upset about it. And, um, you know, it's, it was a fifth stage Alzheimer's unit. The guy didn't even probably know who she was or that she was there. Who knows what, but it's not like she was mad at him. She was just mad at the situation. And I told her, I said, well, Hey, you're my wife now. Just come home. You don't have to work. She's like, really? Is that a thing? I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll work. You stay home. That's how it was with my family. She's like, okay, sweet. So she quit, came home. Then she had anything to do. So before a Christian, she'd sit home and day drink and watch soap operas and hang out with the dog until I came home from work. And then when, when, when this experience happened with her and God, well, that didn't work anymore. She didn't want to do that anymore. So she would sit and read her Bible, let the dog out in the mud just to have something to clean up. And um, and we would talk about the Bible a lot in those days in our early marriage. It was, well, I mean, almost every night I'd come home. It's just the two of us, and we'd sit and talk about the Bible. We were starting to go to this little Baptist church. The preacher was coming around a lot, and she would ask me questions. When she first started reading the Bible, she read through Matthew, and of course, it was King James because I was a Baptist, a good Baptist. So she read through Matthew, and then she read through Mark, and she started in on Luke, and I came home from work, and we were talking about the Bible, and she's like, Matthew, is the Bible just the same story over and over again? I was like, no, try Romans. There's different stuff in there. And so she started reading Romans, and then, and then what happened was I came home from work one night, and we ate steak all the time back then. And we were sitting down to have steak and potatoes like most night. And she said, "There's, I want to talk about some stuff. I was like, okay. And she pulled out a notebook. And in her notebook, she'd written down probably, I don't remember, it was a page or two pages of Bible verses that she'd written with her own hand. And I knew that represented a lot of work because... She wasn't using no strongs. She wasn't cross referencing. These were things that she had come across, and she'd been looking at this stuff for a long time. And I read through all these verses that she'd written down, and they were they were they were what you'd call like the conversion passages of the Bible. Um, if any man be in Christ, behold, all things are made new. Children of the light, children of the darkness. All this kind of stuff. These passages in Romans, like. These were the... That's what all this stuff was. And I said, okay, well, what's your question about that stuff? And she said, with no guile, she said, there's something different about me now. I don't think that I could do the kinds of things that we used to do. But you did all those things and you were a Christian. And I don't understand how that's possible. And I said, well you know, I was backslid, but we're okay now. We're going to church, and things are good, and we're coming, we're returning, like, we're doing the right things, and it's okay, and once saved, always saved, and I asked Jesus into my heart already, so it's all cool. Don't worry about it. And I I don't think she was convinced, but for the first time, I wasn't convinced. And so I I remember after that night, 1 John 1, 6 became like my enemy. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And that thing just like kicked around in my head nonstop. It was there when I went to sleep. It was there when I woke up. I had a really boring job at that time. I was working in a cabinet shop for a motorhome. Company and I would just sit for eight hours and run a palm sander and think about that verse nonstop all day every day and I couldn't escape it. It just was the only thing in my head. And the reason it bothered me so much, well, there's two reasons it bothered me so much. I was telling somebody the other day, revelation is not a new idea. I mean there are revelations that are new things. Like John has a revelation where he sees new things, but generally Scriptural revelation is when you finally see something old. Yeah. Amen. Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, this has not been revealed to you from men, but my father from heaven has showed you this. It's knowing something old the way it was supposed to be known. And that's why that was bothering me. Because see, when I read that for the first time, I probably memorized that when I was a kid. But now it was like a mathematical equation. If you say that you have fellowship plus walk in darkness equals liar. And I fit every piece of that equation. I said I was a Christian and I knew that I walked in darkness. And the only conclusion I could have was liar. And I felt like for weeks I just had this voice of God stuck in my head saying, you're a liar. You're a liar. You're a liar. You're a liar. And I wrestled and wrestled with that. And I didn't know what to do with it because my my head was so messed up from the stuff I learned as a kid. I didn't know how to put it together. I didn't know how to make sense of what, I was, what God was telling me now and what the church told me when I was a kid. I couldn't put the two together. And so I was... Struggling and wrestling with this and trying to figure out. I, and I finally had a place where I don't care what I have to do. I just want to quit being a liar. Like, I got to get real with this stuff. And I remember sitting and thinking about this stuff and trying to work it out and trying to figure out how to make sense of this. And I finally, it occurred to me a couple of things. And And it was over a process of time, but it was very punctuated. The first thing was like, Whatever I've learned about Christianity up to this point in my life has done me absolutely zero good, like less than zero good. It doesn't done me a a bit of difference for all the good my life has done out of what I learned of as Christianity. I might as well have not have learned it. In fact, if you had raised me as a Buddhist, I'd been a much better person if I was raised as a Christian. And so whatever Christianity was to me at that point in my life had zero effect. So it's either wrong or what I know about it is wrong because that's not, that can't be the case. Like Christianity either has to be a falsehood or if it has any real effect, it must be something different than what I've learned about it. And then I started thinking about this belief premise, like believing in the facts of the gospel and I was sitting at my table and I was looking at my door and I said, I believe that door is made out of wood. And that fact has as much value to me as believing that Jesus is the son of God. Like it's completely immaterial. It, it, for all of the belief, it means nothing. And I thought, I thought, if, if it's not a scam, if it's not a lie, if it's not a falsehood, if Christianity is true, then there must be something... Personal about it it must be and I remembered all the like religious language I grew up hearing as a kid about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and see to me that was just like that was Christian ease that was the way Christian people talked like a lot of things like fellowship or like you know all the terms that we use that are just like they only exist in our culture like you can't use them out in the world people would know what you're talking about like I don't know you know what I mean just like the way Christian people talk in Christian circles It was just one of those things, like personal relationship with Jesus Christ just meant like be a good one of us. And I thought, well, what if it's more than that? What if that personal relationship stuff, like what if Christianity isn't about the history? What if it actually does mean you can have a relationship with somebody? And I began to think, well, if Christianity works, it has to be that it's about somebody instead of something and the next thing was well the devil's belief like if you grant the the biblical story is true the devil believes all the things that i believed up to this point and he's no more christian than i am so belief in these facts don't work so how do i get access to him is there access to him and this is the place where Jesus finally became real and somebody instead of this historical figure. And I had real experiences and encounters with Christ where he really met me and, and, and started to shape me. started to interact with me. I began to feel the presence of God. I began to connect with, with him. And then things started to change. Then it was like the lights were on. Then, like, all this old stuff from my childhood started to make sense. All these terminology, these scriptures, all this stuff that I had, like, it was just, like, flotsam and jetsam. It was just debris in my mind and in my life. And all of a sudden it started to animate and come to life and be something. And now I cared. And now things started. And the first experience that I had when I knew things were different, I went to a party. Eric and I hadn't been, it'd been a long time, since so we'd seen any of our friends, and we were kind of bored, like, because we didn't have any friends. Like, we'd go to church on Sunday, and we'd see Brother Bob and Sister Susie, but then we weren't going to see him again until Wednesday night. Like, I didn't have anybody in my life. It was just work and go to church on the weekends, and we were bored, bored stiff. We didn't know what to do with ourselves. And so we finally got so bored, we heard, we heard that our old friend of ours was having a party, and we are like, hey, maybe we'll just go see. I mean, it's been six, eight months We could stop by and see what's going on And say hello to people And so we did And so we stopped and saw our old friends It was nice I mean, they were drunk And I I didn't have any desire to do that anymore Um, But it was nice to see our old friends And catch up with people And hey, how you been? And all this stuff And oh, hey, I haven't seen you in forever All that stuff And I went outside to smoke a cigarette I was still smoking Obviously. And we were, I stepped outside of the door and there was this little patio and a bunch of steps that went down and like a pit driveway. And it was crowded. There was just room for me to stand just in, just outside the door. And I lit a cigarette and I was, I didn't know these people. They didn't know me. Nobody had seen before. And, um, the guy standing directly across from me was drunk. And he said, Hey man, can I use your cigarette for a light? So I handed him my cigarette you know, I don't you, you use the end of a cigarette to light your cigarette and he lit his cigarette and then threw my cigarette on the ground. He was just being disrespectful. He was just being a dumb drunk and everybody kind of snickered and I laughed. But while I was laughing, I had all this, like, I had this thing run through my head Like, like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. All the gears started, all my gears started moving and I was, I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to kick this guy in the stomach. He would go back in between that rail and then I would hit him in the head. He would fall back there. I'd jump over the rail on top of him and start beating him. And that happened in a second, like in less than a second, all that went through my mind. And, and I knew that's what was going to do. And so when I smiled and laughed, I was laughing about what I was about to do to this guy. And, and this is a familiar thing. Like it's how, it's how you start to act when you do a lot of this kind of stuff. And, and so you think through those things and then there's like a trigger that happens and you spring and you jump into action. And so all that went through my mind and then there was no trigger. And I felt like I was shocked. I was surprised. I was like, where's the trigger? What, how, okay, go. 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 And I couldn't go. And there was nothing there. And it freaked me out. Like, it freaked me out a lot. I was like, what is wrong with me? Am I going to let this kid disrespect me? Like, he doesn't even know who I am. And I just, like... I had this, I was just shocked. And I opened the door behind me and I went back inside. And I was like, okay, we got to (laughs) go. And after I thought about it, I was like, that's what Erica meant. I couldn't do the things that we used to do. It was gone. I just didn't have the capacity for it anymore. That was my first experience with new nature. I think that's probably a, a good place to stop. I think that when I read Romans 6, I know exactly what he means to be a servant to sin. When you are a servant to sin, you are, you are free from righteousness. Nothing about righteousness got in my way my morals were gone my ethics were devastated and my behavior was deplorable i was completely gone i think about it sometimes you know those people that we hung out with back at that point in my life they were they were like erica they had come from broken homes and broken places and broken situations they had been broken their whole lives and if you were to write out the story of all the people that I hung out with at that point in my life, and you would say, this person, he went through this, this is what happened to his family, this is what happened in his early childhood, this is what happened his life, this is where he ended up, and he went to jail for the next 15 years, you'd be like, yeah, okay, well, it's probably what would happen from that life. But I didn't have one of those stories. I was an upper-middle-class kid with two parents who loved him his whole life, spanked me when I did wrong, didn't when I didn't, were kind, gracious, taught me the Bible, never saw my parents fight, never was abused, never had anything wrong. And there I was in the same place as all those people who were broken from the time they were born till the time I met them. And I think that <clears throat> what that means to me is that I'm a different kind of broken than that because I chose to be that way. I wanted to be that way. I developed a set of skills to allow me to be that way very purposefully. And that to me is a different kind of depravity. And uh, in our early years, when we became Christians and when we, I call it radicalized, we started embracing the Sermon on the Mount and head covering modesty and all these things that we started doing, people from that phase in our life were like what are you guys doing you're off the deep end what are you nobody's like you why, why are you being so crazy why you got to take it to such an extreme why you got to be so carried away with all this stuff can't you just be a normal christian like everybody else like why has it got to be such a big deal why is it all the time why is it the only thing you'll talk about why is it? The, why just chill out and i always would say it was so easy for me to be wicked I was so good at being horrible until I'm that good at being a Christian. I can't be happy with myself. I can't be content. I want to be able to serve God as well as I serve the devil. I'm still to this day. I still have a long way to go in that until my Christianity is as natural to me as my sin. I don't want to stop that's what's got us from there to here. Thanks for listening. It's good to share those stories from time to time. And I think, you know what values have for you, it's good for the saints to hear one another's stories, but more than that, the thing that I think that my story can value the church in is that sometimes I meet people and they seem so broken. Uh, they're divorced, or married, or <coughs> they're caught up in addiction. They seem hopeless. And I don't think that anybody is hopeless because I'm quite sure if there was a way for me to make it from there to here, there's a way for anybody to make it from there to here. Let's give thanks to God and then maybe we'll close with a song. Heavenly Father, I want to praise you for the ability to testify. I want to praise you, Father, for the goodness and the patience that you treat men with. I want to praise you, Father, for how you woo men and call them and love them and are long-suffering with them. We know, Father, that no greater love hath any man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. And we know that it's a rare virtue that men will die for another man. But we were enemies of God. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Thank you, Father. You're so gracious. And you're so merciful. And you're so condescending. You come so very low into the worst of places. Your arm is long. And your love is great. And we worship you, Father, for the things that you do with men. And women, how you call us and save us and redeem us. I thank you, Father, for the things in my life that I have no right or claim to. My place in the church, the peace in my life, my children, my marriage, my brotherhood, my work. Everything I have, Father, all of it comes from you. And I bless you for those things. In Jesus' name, amen.